You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, and thank you all so much for joining me for today's episode focused on self-forgiveness. We'll be exploring self-forgiveness from both a psychological perspective as well as a contemplative or meditative perspective. We'll talk about what we mean when we use the word self-forgiveness and what it looks like to practice it. I'll begin with a definition of self-forgiveness that comes from more of a Western psychological standpoint and also share some of the psychological research to date on the benefits of self-forgiveness. I'll then draw on this research to discuss some specific strategies for engaging in a practice of self-forgiveness. And we'll close by walking through a meditation that I've created to focus on self-forgiveness and that incorporates many of the strategies I'll highlight today. Before launching into what we know about self-forgiveness from psychological research, I want to share a bit of a personal story that was a primary driver for my desire to do this episode. And one reason I felt inspired to focus an episode on self-forgiveness is because self-forgiveness is a practice that has been a big part of my own life for a long time. It's something that has been a part of my own healing journey, my own transformation as a person, something that I've been grappling with for a long time. And it has taken me many many years to come to truly understand the practice of self-forgiveness and what that means to me personally. About 12 years ago, I hurt a friend, a very special human being, someone that I deeply loved and cared about who was a very important force in my life. And I hurt them in a deep way that I still very much regret and think about a lot. I think about it very often. And even though I didn't intend to hurt this person, I did. And it led to them not being a part of my life anymore. We are not in contact anymore. And when this first happened, I was so torn up about it, so consumed by self-blame, by 
hating myself for what I had done. I was in utter disbelief. I was disgusted. I felt ashamed that that every spare moment my mind wasn't thinking about something else, I would come back to this hurt I had caused and I would be hit with this wave of emotion and just wanted to crawl away and disappear. I, I wanted to make it go away. And a friend of mine, a lovely friend who is still a friend, encouraged me to try to forgive myself. And I remember her saying that. I still very clearly remember being in her car and her telling me this and having no idea what she meant. I had no idea how to go about doing that. I didn't even know what self-forgiveness really meant. I mean, I understood it on an intellectual level, but the actual practice of it was completely mysterious to me. And I also didn't actually feel like I deserved forgiveness. I didn't feel like I deserved forgiveness from this other person, and I certainly didn't feel like I deserved to forgive myself. It was almost like feeling this badly so much of every day was my punishment, the sentence I had to serve for having caused someone else so much harm. And so very slowly over time, through all sorts of different conversations and readings and learnings and interventions, I came to realize that not only was the self-hatred not serving me, but it was actually also interfering with my ability to truly repair what I had done. So when we become so focused on hating ourselves, there really isn't much space for much else. And that self-hatred taints our entire being. It infiltrates our thought patterns, our perspectives, our tone, how we approach the world, and it even affects our attempts at healing and repair. And so over time, I was able to find this way to both hold myself accountable without hating myself. So hold myself accountable and not hate myself. And when the hatred started to soften, it also helped me see more clearly in a way that helped me understand why I had done what I had done, not as an excuse, but as a way that could propel me forward into learning from those actions and what contributed to those actions. So the guilt and regret and sadness are all still present for me and come in waves at different points and times, though they are softer. And I don't beat myself up about what happened anymore. I don't think malicious thoughts about myself for it because I do have more understanding of what happened and what contributed to my actions again not as an excuse but to help me appreciate from a bird's eye view what had happened in my life up until that point the experiences I had had that led to some pretty strong self-protective mechanisms and fears and anxieties that got in the way of vulnerability and courage the experiences that I had and didn't have that led to some 
lack of skills in terms of self-awareness and connecting with myself and my needs and being able to then communicate effectively those needs with other people. So I do wish I had acted differently and yet I now see that there was no other way for this to have happened in the way that it did given the multitude of influences on my end in my life and in my friends that led to this particular junction in time in which this occurred. In order for a different outcome to have happened, something else earlier in this chain of events, this complex web of events that contributed to this outcome would have needed to have been different. So I wish it didn't happen and it did. So this is where I've also had to practice self-acceptance as part of my self-forgiveness practice. Acceptance for the life experiences that contributed to me not having self-awareness and confidence and skills that might have prevented what have happened. And I've also had to practice acceptance of the consequences of my actions. I've had to gracefully accept that this person, understandably so, does not want to be in my life and hasn't been open to receiving my attempts at repair. So I have needed to get creative about how to make those repairs without involving the other person. And we'll talk more about that later today. I still carry this pain in my heart. But I carry the pain without the hatred for myself. And so I can then carry this pain in a way that keeps me committed to not hurting someone else in that same way again. So it is in this spirit that I share these reflections with you today as a fellow human being who is also imperfect and has hurt other people and myself and has had to practice self-forgiveness again and again, who is also walking this path, and still very much learning. In order to practice self-forgiveness, we first need to know what self-forgiveness means. I do want to acknowledge that the Western psychology and contemplative perspectives that I'm drawing from today are some of the many perspectives on forgiveness. Self-forgiveness is explored in a variety of religious traditions and spiritual realms. And so if you are finding yourself drawn to any particular religious or spiritual wisdom and teachings regarding self-forgiveness and forgiveness, I encourage you to continue to explore the extent to which those teachings may or may not fit into your own life in terms of your own personal practice of self-forgiveness and how those teachings might also intersect with or even complement what we discussed today. Self-forgiveness from a Western psychology perspective tends to be defined as a practice of releasing the resentment or hatred we feel towards ourselves for our own actions. So there may be opportunities for self-forgiveness when we blame ourselves for a mistake that we made or a regret for a certain life decision, for example. And there also might be opportunities for self-forgiveness when we resent and hate ourselves for ways we've hurt others. And in the example I just gave, 
Self-forgiveness is also not about condoning or approving of behaviors that have hurt ourselves or other people and or compromised our values. So self-forgiveness isn't about letting ourselves off the hook and excusing ourselves. Self-forgiveness is about fully embracing and accepting the reality of what has happened so that we can then hold ourselves accountable for our part in what happened without rumination, without self-hatred, with compassion, while also understanding what contributed to those actions. And that then informs needed repairs that we can make. So without understanding, it's difficult to know how to make a repair that actually makes sense given the transgression we've engaged in. And when we go through this process in this way, we can embrace this experience as an opportunity to grow and translate it into a committed action, some kind of change we can make in going forward. Another important point that I like to consider when it comes to self-forgiveness is that self-forgiveness is a process that needs to be independent of seeking forgiveness from others. So these are two separate practices and processes and we're only focusing on self-forgiveness today. But in essence, remembering that the extent to which other people forgive us isn't necessarily determining how much we are able to forgive ourselves. We can forgive ourselves even when others have not expressed forgiveness to us. So how entitled we are to self-forgiveness, whether we are deserving of forgiveness, has nothing to do with the extent to which someone else has forgiven us. They are not the arbiter of self-forgiveness. Self-forgiveness is for us and it is up to us to make decisions about when and how self-forgiveness is warranted. So since self-forgiveness can be really challenging, I think it's important to understand not only what it is, but why we would bother, why forgiveness of the self is so important. I think without being grounded in an understanding of these benefits, it can be hard to sustain the motivation and willingness and vulnerability and bravery that is typically required of working towards self-forgiveness or even setting the intention of working towards self-forgiveness can be difficult to do without understanding what the purpose is. So research has shown that people who practice self-forgiveness have much better mental and emotional well-being for example, less anxiety and depression. They also have more positive attitudes and healthier relationships. On the flip side, holding on to resentment, which would be like the opposite of self-forgiveness, and being unforgiving towards others increases our stress levels. So self-forgiveness can help us decrease stress levels and decrease cortisol levels in the body. Research also shows a number of physical health benefits. So forgiveness of ourselves can improve cholesterol levels, it can reduce bodily pain and blood pressure, and also lower our risk of heart attacks. And there are some situational and gender differences in some of these findings, but there is also some research that shows that people who are high in forgiveness, so able to forgive other people and forgive themselves, 
demonstrate greater high frequency heart rate variability and more blood pressure recovery than persons who are low in forgiveness. And similar results are found when we receive apologies. So both giving and receiving apology and giving and receiving forgiveness are associated with these same physical health benefits. And the reason that some of this is so important is that heart rate variability in particular is thought to be an indicator of our resiliency and response to stress. So it's an indicator of how well our nervous systems can recover and switch gears more easily after something stressful occurs. Another important reason to forgive ourselves is that self-forgiveness is correlated with self-compassion and self-compassion has its own benefits. So self-compassion is associated with higher levels of success and productivity and focus and concentration, which I think is often counter to what some people think of when they think of self-forgiveness and self-compassion. They are often misassumed to be signs of weakness or that they might incite laziness. In comparison, people who are highly critical of themselves tend to experience more negativity, stress, and pessimism, which are of course associated with a whole slew of negative quality of life indicators. Having a compassionate and forgiving attitude towards ourselves is also a really critical component of successful relationships. So of course in relationship there are conflicts that happen. We hurt each other even without meaning to. And so being able to repair those bonds when they become fractured is really important. And research shows that both partners tend to feel more relationship satisfaction and have fewer negative thoughts about each other when there is genuine self-forgiveness. And the final thing I want to say about benefits of self-forgiveness is that I think engaging in the process of self-forgiveness reinforces this truth that we are both imperfect and still worthy and lovable. So we can hold ourselves accountable without indulging in cycles of blame and over-apology that keep us stuck. So we can not only repair and make commitments to different actions and going forward in ways that enhance our relationships, but also makes us less likely to repeat those patterns, both within the context of relationships and outside of them. So one important caveat here is that despite these number of benefits for self-forgiveness, there is some research that shows that self-forgiveness can sometimes reduce empathy for those who have been hurt by our actions because when we take more of an inward focus, it can make it more difficult to identify with other people. And so for this reason, I view the practice of enhancing empathy and acknowledging the reality of what we've done as key pieces to self-forgiveness. So we don't want to be so self-forgiving that we bypass accountability, that we don't fully feel the emotional intensity and weight of what we have done, whether it is to us or other people or some kind of combination. 
Now that we have some sense of what self-forgiveness means and some of the benefits of self-forgiveness, I want to transition into talking about the how, how we practice self-forgiveness, what this process looks like. And in Western psychological models, there are several evidence-based models that are used to facilitate processes of self-forgiveness in both individual and group therapy, and they share commonalities and also have some distinct differences. But one thing that they do share in common is an emphasis on self-forgiveness as a process and a practice that starts with some kind of acknowledgement of what happened, that involves some kind of active work, whether that is an expression of remorse or emotion or some kind of repair, and then some kind of more future-oriented piece, whether it be a continued practice of self-forgiveness or some kind of change in going forward. And some examples of the kinds of changes that might be involved in this phase could be enhancing self-image through increasing compassion, could be softening guilt and remorse, could be replacing more negative self-critical thoughts with more accepting thoughts, making meaning of the transgression, or cultivating a renewed sense of purpose or meaning after the transgression. So those are just a few examples of what that phase might look like. And although this research is not developed sufficiently enough to determine what kinds of interventions or strategies associated with these models are most effective in promoting self-forgiveness, the good news is that the research shows that There's diversity in terms of the strategies that can facilitate self-forgiveness. So apology, expressive writing, contemplative practice, positive self-talk, a technique called the empty chair exercise, which some of you may know. And research also shows that the more time we spend engaging in these interventions, the stronger the improvements. And many of these interventions focus not only on forgiving ourselves emotionally, but also on the process of self-forgiveness as a window into deepening intimacy and connecting with others and fortifying our own personal self-esteem. So essentially finding ways to still consider ourselves as good people even with these missteps and harmful actions. So I think for me this research is really important and valuable because it shows that There are tools that work, that have research support, and it doesn't need to be one size fits all. There's not just one strategy that's helpful to all people in all circumstances all the time, that there are a variety of modalities that we can choose from. So even though we're focusing primarily on a more contemplative approach today, I encourage you to explore other modalities if this approach doesn't resonate with you because there are other approaches out there that you can source from as you explore and practice your own self-forgiveness process. All of this research informs a hybrid approach that brings together different aspects from psychology and contemplative models that I use in my own life and share with my clients. And I'll walk through the components of this approach in more of a phase-based way today, more for ease of conversation since in reality, they're more integrated than separate 
phases. And they aren't mutually exclusive. They're not necessarily linear. Someone might be in a certain stage, so to speak, for quite a bit of time. And so I think it can be useful to talk about self-forgiveness in the this way of phases because it is so complex, but I also don't want to unintentionally give the impression that it's necessarily a very structured, linear process because there is a lot of overlap, as you'll see, between some of these stages. I'll go through each phase in more detail, but want to start with an overview so that you have a sense of what's coming. The first phase is what I refer to as the acknowledgement and accountability phase. So in this phase, we're exploring what happened on an emotional and physical and cognitive and spiritual level so that we can arrive at a place of accountability for the true reality of what happened. The second phase is related to seeking understanding of what happened with a self-compassionate stance. The third is related to amends making and repair, both with ourselves and with others. And the fourth is related to committed action, so focused on changes that we commit to making and going forward. And this process is often iterative and occurs over a period of time, and the intensity of our self-forgiveness practice may correspond to the depth of the transgression or the harm that we have caused, and or depending on how much we feel we have violated our core values. So usually the surfacing of self-blame or feelings of guilt, regret, shame, remorse are the first signs that we have hurt ourselves or someone else or that we have violated our values in some kind of way. So part of this first phase, the acknowledgement and accountability phase, is recognizing these feelings acknowledging them, allowing them to be, resisting urges to suppress them, to bypass them, to ignore them, or even minimize them, or logic yourself out of them, to justify them, and instead to treat them as important guides and teachers that are pointing us towards important work that needs to be done. Another key element to this accountability and acknowledgement phase is being in a place of groundedness and centeredness so that you can engage in this phase and really all of these phases most effectively. So when we are in a very intellectualized, cerebral kind of space, disconnected from our bodies, not in touch with our emotions, it's really hard to go through this process in a meaningful way. We can go through the emotions, but it may not have as much depth or integrity or meaning. And so it really is important to enter this process with a sense of groundedness and centeredness. And so for you, considering what helps you feel grounded in the present moment, even when there is stress. Are you someone who really resonates with a body-based practice? Can you go for a walk in the woods? Can you feel your feet on the earth as all of the muscles and tendons and ligaments and bones strike the earth? Can you take a few deep breaths into your belly and feel the temperature and texture of the air and the sensation of the air as it flows in and out of your nostrils and mouth? Are you someone who's a bit more auditory? Would it help to listen to a soothing song, allowing yourself to fully take in the body of the song, the rhythm, the pace, the tones, the vibrations? 
are you someone who is really tactile? Do you want to dig in the earth? Do you want to play with some clay? Stick your feet in a body of water, some kind of physical sensation, maybe even a really warm bath or cold shower. Are you someone who really resonates with movement, gentle stress, stretching or a high intensity cardiovascular exercise, something that alivens and awakens you while also truly grounding you and spending as much time as you need to in that practice so that you can arrive in this more centered, grounded, clear-headed, true kind of place. And once you are able to get to that more settled place, then we can begin to reflect more meaningfully on the reality of what happened with integrity. This is with the intention of arriving at more acknowledgement and accountability. So the goal here is to honestly and fully acknowledge and accept the reality of the depth of the harm that we have caused. Again, to ourselves, to someone else, or maybe even both. So we slow things down. We slow down the tape of our memory and try to remember all of the pieces. All of the thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, actions in ourselves, events in the external environment, all of the pieces of the puzzle connecting with all of the sensory details. And another key piece of this is really trying to imagine what this was like for the other person, really trying to embody their perspective so that you can have empathy for their position, even if you were also hurt in this interaction, wanting to ensure that you can take their perspective. And as you go through your memory of what happened in more of this slow-paced kind of way, some details may be more searingly painful than others. And Try to be with these emotions as best as you can, whether that means letting tears flow, whether that means shaking, whether that means curling into a ball, really allowing your body to express itself, the waves of emotion to express themselves through your body in whatever way they need to. And maybe even maintaining a consistent slow deep breathing pattern as best as you can to help you weather these waves of emotional intensity and if it feels too overwhelming you can pause you're in control you can come back to this it's important to honor where you are at in this process it is not something that we want to rush it takes the time that it takes and so this may be a phase that you stay in and that you return to for some time continuing to acknowledge the reality of what happened without brushing past it superficially without avoiding it and sometimes we do know the difference between when we are avoiding and brushing past something and when we are overly ruminating in a way that stops being helpful If we rush to the apology or repair phase without engaging in this acknowledgement and accountability phase, our apologies land hollow. So oftentimes we know we've done something wrong. We want to apologize. We want it to be over. We want to move on. And so we quickly rush to the apology repair phase without having done this prior work and so it doesn't really land with the other person in the way that we want it to because there isn't that same emotional depth so that's another key piece to keep in mind during this phase it's also important to distinguish between actions that you do truly need to take ownership for 
and treat as a learning opportunity and those that really aren't yours to own. And that can take some time and discernment as well. And maybe even something that you reach out to a trusted other therapist, friend, religious advisor to work through to help you discern which part of this is mine to own and and which part of it isn't. And this may be especially relevant if someone is also confronting us about something that we've done to hurt them and blaming us. So in essence, through this phase, we want to understand if we are being realistic about the harm we have caused. We don't want to underestimate. We don't want to overestimate. And that is why this centering and grounding practice is so necessary for proceeding this phase so that we can engage in all of these different levels of discernment most effectively. At the same time, We also want to be understanding or working towards understanding of why we might have engaged in these actions, again, with a stance of self-compassion. Now, this may be something you have already done in the acknowledgement and accountability phase, but sometimes it can be hard to both acknowledge the painful reality of what happened in a situation while also seeking understanding of why we might have done what we did. So, If it's easier for you, you can have these processes be separate. So first, focusing on the real details of what happened and then focusing on the understanding piece with this lens of self-compassion. And especially when these situations are charged, separating out these processes can be beneficial. So one part of approaching and understanding of our actions with self-compassion is to remember and honor the context in which those actions occurred. So we want to be asking ourselves questions like, what might have contributed to how I acted in this moment? Was there anything that made me more vulnerable that particular day, week, month, or year to certain decisions I made, certain actions I engaged in, certain opportunities that I missed? Was I sick? Was I sleep deprived? Was there something happening in my physical body that contributed? Was there something happening on an emotional or spiritual level? Was I emotionally drained after a recent stressor or an accumulation of stressors? Was there a past trauma or hurt that was activated in some kind of way? Was there intense emotion that led me to feel more angry and guarded or defensive and critical? Were there any kinds of internal pressures that I was faced with like perfectionism or the need to portray myself in a certain kind of way were there any external pressures like cultural norms and expectations like some kind of socialization to respond in a certain kind of way or a certain kind of social socialization or conditioning related to power differentials and my role in certain power differentials and what feels allowed in certain kinds of relationships? And was I lacking in certain skills or insights that would have been required to respond differently? What was I thinking and feeling at the time? Did any kinds of emotions or thoughts interfere with my perceptions of the situation or lead to certain assumptions that I made? that interfered with my ability to respond in a way that was calm and consistent with my values? What was the role of other people or institutions? What kinds of things did other people or institutions do or not do that might have contributed to this outcome? So 
all of these kinds of curiosities and questions are important to sit with because our goal is to really describe the entirety of the circumstances in an objective, factual, non-judgmental, and self-compassionate way. And again, without this understanding of what contributed to our mistake or transgression or harm that we caused, it will be much harder later on to figure out how to commit to doing things differently. If we don't know where or how things fell apart, we can't know how to do it differently in the future. Another key piece of approaching our mistakes and transgressions with compassion is connecting to our shared humanity, recognizing that we all hurt other people. We hurt even the people that we love the most. We may not feel deserving of forgiveness and not allowing ourselves to be forgiven by other people and ourselves may be our way of punishing ourselves. And while that is totally understandable, and I've been in that position before too, when we don't allow ourselves permission for self-forgiveness, we are buying into the idea that we are defined by all of our actions. That one singular action makes up the truth of who we are. And again, if we consider that forgiveness doesn't mean letting ourselves off the hook, that there is still a way to acknowledge and repair the harm that we've caused without hating ourselves, self-forgiveness seems more possible. At the same time, we can't force self-forgiveness. So if you are so caught in self-hatred that you cannot see yourself as part of this fabric of humanity in which we do hurt each other intentionally and unintentionally, and if you truly feel like your actions are so abhorrent or so inexcusable and unforgivable that this human reality doesn't apply to you, that you too are not deserving of forgiveness you can articulate the intention to forgive yourself and this I think is a really powerful piece of wisdom that comes from one of my meditation teachers and mentors Tara Brock so she recommends that when we are struggling to forgive ourselves to soften the harshness that we feel towards ourselves that we can express an intention of self-forgiveness through some kind of self-compassionate wish or commitment regarding self-forgiveness. So some examples I've used for myself and with clients before could be phrases like, may I continue to work towards self-forgiveness? Or may I one day find a way to forgive myself? Or... I hope to truly understand why I might have done what I did so that I can learn from it. Or I want to eventually forgive myself as others have forgiven me. So again, this doesn't need to be, nor should it be fake. It needs to resonate with where you are at. But if there's some kind of positive wish 
compassionate intention that you can set for yourself regarding self-forgiveness, even if you don't feel like you're deserving of it yet, this can be a powerful way to still participate in this practice. Another element that can be helpful when we are struggling with feeling deserving of self-forgiveness, in addition to the humanizing of transgressions as a part of human experience is to try to hold multiple truths at the same time. And I see this as another key piece of how I personally define self-compassion. So in essence, what this means is we acknowledge the painful reality of what we've done and we're not allowing it to stand alone as the only truth. We're bringing in something else to stand alongside of it that also feels genuinely true to us. So for example, that second piece that we bring in could focus on a core piece of the context that doesn't excuse our actions, doesn't justify our actions, doesn't approve of our actions, but did genuinely contribute to them in a way that makes our actions more understandable. It makes them make more sense. Or perhaps that second part that we bring in is more focused on our repair or what we've learned from this experience or what we're going to commit to doing and going forward. So again, the first part is the acknowledgement of the painful truth. And the second part is bringing in another truth that potentially isn't as focused on the self-hatred or the self-resentment, or the self-criticism. And again, both sides need to feel true. So we're not forcing something before we're ready. We're not faking it. So some examples. This could look something like, I wish I had the courage to say how I really felt, and I didn't have the skills at the time to work through my fears. Another example, I'm so sorry I hurt that person and I'm going to try my best to make changes so I don't hurt others in the same way again. Or I really hate myself for what I've done and I'm going to try to keep working through this. So those are just some examples and I encourage you to experiment with your own and find what resonates for you. So while the compassion and humanizing of our transgressions are helpful steps towards self-understanding, this phase of self-forgiveness that involves understanding, we cannot forgive ourselves until we have made efforts to repair to the best of our ability which brings us to this third phase and when I think about repair I think about bravery and vulnerability because so much of repair involves mustering the courage and willingness to face the truth of what we've done and the guilt and shame we might experience may lead us to avoid and turn away, and downplay what we've done. And the work really is to turn toward what we've done, whether, again, it's within ourselves or towards someone else. And so 
figuring out what kind of a bravery practice works for you. So maybe you say aloud what you've done. No one else has to listen or hear it, but simply saying the words aloud of what you've done can be a way to avoid less and to confront. Maybe you do share with someone that you trust what you've done. Maybe you express it in a journal. So really consider what helps you feel brave and willing. What kinds of actions do you engage in when you are fearful, when you know in your heart the next right thing to do and yet you feel stuck? What helps you overcome that roadblock? For me, something that helps is thinking about my son and thinking about what I want to model for him, what I want to show him. And, and often it's, it's the brave choice. And, and to show him that we can move forward with bravery even when we are terrified. Sometimes I focus on the cost of not acting and really play that out. How will I feel about myself today, tomorrow, five years from now, at the end of my life, if I don't face this? Sometimes it's a kind of, of ritual listening to a song that really pumps me up sometimes it's getting my body moving sometimes it's reflecting on people that I feel inspired by that I see as brave maybe it's reading a favorite quote or poem and maybe it's through meditation and mantra but but something that helps you connect to your inner source of vitality and strength and bravery so with that in place we can begin to cultivate repair And for me, repair involves full mind, body, and spirit, as well as repairing in a way that resonates with the other person that also connects to the transgression. So this in some way circles back to our earlier conversation about understanding why we might have engaged in a certain action. If I know that I tend to yell at my kids when I'm more tired, I not only really need to commit to getting more sleep, and being more careful with my tone and volume, but I may need to even take that a step further to fully repair to them, to show them that I am really taking this seriously, that I am treating their hurt as valid and worth me dedicating my energy and emotional resources towards. So maybe part of my repair is even more specific, and I commit to going to bed one hour earlier every day for four weeks and to take a few breaths when I'm angry before I speak. Maybe I even say aloud to my kids, I'm noticing I'm feeling angry or we talk about zones in my house. So I'm noticing I'm in the red zone. I'm going to take a few breaths um, so that I can really show and demonstrate that I am committed to this repair and that the repair is actually linked to what I did. So I'm not buying them a toy or even taking them somewhere special. Those are great things, but they aren't necessarily connected to what I did that hurt them. We can also use these same principles when we're working with resentment towards ourselves for something that we've done to ourselves. So for example, maybe I regret a mistake that I made and through this process of self-compassionate understanding I realized that my anxiety propelled me into making a decision really quickly to make that anxiety go away. So part of my repair to myself is to have a slower decision-making process in the future. But I take that further. I make it more specific. What does that slower decision-making process look like? Does it mean 
talking with someone that I really value about my decision making? Does it mean writing out pros and cons? Does it mean sitting with the decision for a certain period of time before I give an answer? Does it mean meditating? What does that look like for me? So making sure that it's actionable, that it's concrete and specific. Another important consideration when it comes to repair is this idea of what is referred to sometimes as overcorrection. So when we have deeply harmed someone, we not only repair the immediate incident, but we take that a step further. So for example, if I used unkind words to someone, I can repair by apologizing, by showing even more kindness with my words and going forward, and maybe even expressing gratitude through my words, or maybe writing them up a poem about what I love about them but taking that repair a step further again in a way that is connected to my transgression so another example could be if I identify that I missed out on an opportunity that I really regret and I'm hating myself for and it is because that I didn't have the interpersonal skills to really confidently assert myself in that moment and to advocate for what I wanted I might repair to myself by committing to deepening my skills. But maybe I say, well, I'm not going to just deepen my skills in self-advocacy and asserting myself. I also want to deepen my skills in mindfulness so that I can be more aware of my needs when they are showing up in the moment. So there is this component of both repairing directly the incident with ourselves and other people in the moment and also overcorrecting, so to speak, taking it a bit further to strengthen the power of the repair. Another important piece to keep in mind about repair is that the work that you have done to understand what contributed to your actions can inform how you repair and deepen the impact of the repair. However, this needs to be done carefully and intentionally. So say for example, I am aware that one of my vulnerabilities that contributed to my hurtful actions was sleep deprivation. So if I go to someone and say, I'm so sorry I hurt you, hadn't really slept the night before and wasn't operating at full capacity. That might feel a bit like an excuse, even though it is true that that was one thing that contributed. I could instead say something like, I'm so sorry that I hurt you, and wait for that to land, wait for them to respond, wait for them to feel the depth of of my words and the authenticity of what I'm saying and expressing and then at some point in the conversation I can also say something like I did think a lot about what happened to see how I could prevent it from happening in the future and realized that because my sleep deprivation created a vulnerability in which I wasn't able to fully hear you and be present and modulate my tone and my emotions, I'm going to commit to going to bed each night at 9.30 instead of 10.30. I'm going to make sure that I'm exercising more regularly, that I am eating three meals a day, 
all sorts of things that I'm going to commit to so that I can prevent the kinds of factors that contributed to my actions that were so hurtful. So you're not using the understanding that you've acquired in order to excuse your behavior. You're making sure the repair, the apology lands first before you introduce it. But through your expression of your understanding, by communicating that you've spent the time reflecting on what you did and what you could now do differently, that can also be integrated as part of the repair. Another piece of the repair process that's so important is accepting consequences gracefully without defensiveness. So someone may not want to be in our lives anymore or be in our lives in quite the same way because of what happened or they may need time and space away and so part of our repair is honoring their needs in these ways they may not even be open to our repair or hearing what we have to say and so we need to get creative about how to how we do that do we write a letter that we don't send out of respect is there a way that we can honor them maybe we plant a tree Um, Or donate to an organization that dedicates itself to a cause that is deeply meaningful to that person. Perhaps we have some kind of ritual. Or if you are someone who prays, you send them a prayer. Or maybe if you are someone who meditates, you do a loving kindness meditation practice where you hold them in mind. And so just making sure that you still engage in a repair process regardless of whether or not that person is in your life, is dead or alive, and how willing they may be to not only hear your repair but also to forgive you in return. The self-forgiveness is really about ourselves to be in alignment with ourselves, to be able to be the fullest versions of ourselves without being bogged down, weighted down by self-hatred and resentment and to be able to still find that innate goodness in us, our worth even with harmful actions that we've caused. And the final piece I want to say about repair is that repair is often ongoing and iterative. So it's not necessarily a one-time deal. It's something that you can return to over and over again. And so in the example I gave earlier with my friend who I hurt, who is no longer in my life, part of my repair is respecting their wishes to no longer be in relationship even though that causes me deep pain and to this day I still hold this person in my mind and my heart when I am engaging in certain kinds of meditative practices and there are still times I do honor them in my own way on their birthday I have a way that I honor them certain times anniversary dates of things that we used to do together that were meaningful I acknowledge those and during those times I acknowledge that I'm sorry sometimes I'll say it out loud sometimes I'll say it internally and I'll send them wishes of of love and kindness and compassion and and hope that they are well Repair is also a part of this larger process of committed action, which I consider to be this fourth phase, so to speak. So committing to learning from our mistakes, 
making different choices in the future is our way of committing to repair in an ongoing way and deriving larger action steps from what happened in this moment. So the repair isn't about just repairing to this one person or group of people in this moment of time. It's about figuring out ways that we can stay in alignment with the values that were violated as a result of our actions in an ongoing way. And so we may need to return to not only the practice of self-forgiveness, but we may need to return to the commitments that we've made that arose out of this learning opportunity. We may need to dedicate ourselves to not causing further harm and suffering in these same ways to ourselves and other people in the future. And I think for this committed action to really be meaningful and to have an impact, it makes sense for it to be concrete. So there is an important piece of intention. And I think there's also an important piece of how those intentions translate into goals and action steps and how they fit into the broader schematic or landscape of our value system. Before we close with a brief meditation on self-forgiveness, I want to summarize the key phases we've talked about today. The first involves this practice of acknowledging the details of what happened and the emotions and thoughts and bodily sensations that go along with those details so that we can arrive at full, honest accountability with integrity regarding what happened. Second, there is a phase of understanding that we seek for our actions, the factors that contributed to what happened both with inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves without condoning or approving of our behavior and with also meeting ourselves with self-compassion. There's also a phase of amends making and repair, both intrapersonal repair within ourselves and interpersonal repair gears towards other geared towards others, even if that person is no longer in our lives, and seeing if we can connect that repair in some way with our transgressions so that it resonates and makes sense. And finally, a phase of engaging in committed action, making sure that we're changing and going forward. And woven throughout all of these phases, we are really trying to embrace values of bravery, self-compassion, acceptance, integrity, and commitment. So with that being said, I'd like to close with a meditation And if you choose, you can engage in this meditation with a mudra. And a mudra is a gesture of the hands, face, and or body that can promote psychological balance and physical health and and many believe spiritual awakening even. And literally, it can be the word mudra can be translated as a seal or attitude or signature. It can evoke a psychological attitude. It can bring something forth and it's used in many different spiritual traditions. And so there is a mudra called the Karuna mudra, which is a compassion mudra. And one reason that I like using mudras is that the fingers contain a large number of sensory and motor nerve endings that communicate with the brain and the rest of the body so there can be certain emotional shifts that can happen cognitive shifts even as a result of using mudra 
So if you choose to practice with this mudra, you would begin by placing your left fingertips at the base of your right fingers and you would cup both hands as you rest the left thumb on your lower right thumb. And then you would hold your hands in front of your heart, slightly rotating the left hand towards your heart and the right hand facing outward. And so the left hand is meant to represent compassion towards yourself and the right hand is meant to represent compassion for others. If this particular mudra does not resonate for any reason, you could also choose to gently rest your hands on your thighs, palms upward. This is a gesture of receptivity and sometimes is referred to as willing hands by Thich Nhat Hanh. So it is meant to communicate to the brain and the body that sense of welcoming and invitation and receptivity. So in whatever body position that makes sense to you, I invite you to gently close your eyes or keep them open, fixated on a point in front of you. And I invite you to begin by taking a few slow, deep, nourishing breaths into your belly and your ribs and chest. Just to become more present to this body in this moment with your body and breath as an anchor. And I invite you to call to mind a situation in your life, past or present, in which you feel some level of guilt, regret, remorse, self-blame, or even self-hatred. And I invite you to choose something that's more low to moderate intensity, to begin by working with something that doesn't have too high of an emotional charge. And as you call to mind this situation and begin to review the tape in your memory of what happened, really work towards a non-judgmental description of what happened, who's there, what these people look like, maybe what you're wearing, the details of the scene around you, connecting with any smells, sounds, tastes, anything that you can feel as you go back in your memory bank. Without necessarily label anything as good or bad, labeling it as it is, as objectively as possible. And as you review this tape of what happened, notice what comes up for you. You can notice by labeling emotions and giving them words. You can notice by tapping into your felt sense in your body of different sensations and different locations of sensations. So in whatever way makes sense to you, being in touch with what gets brought up emotionally, physically, in your thought process as you review this memory. And ask yourself, what was true of the context at this time? What factors contributed to what happened? 
both within yourself and outside of yourself. They could be specific to the current situation or relationship. They could be historical influences related to life history. They could be generational influences, patterns and models that have been passed down, cultural influences. Naming them in a way that isn't a justification or as an excuse, but more as an observation of what is or what was. And again, noticing what comes up for you as you explore these questions. Being with the waves of emotion rather than pushing them away. And trusting that you can handle what comes up. And if it gets to be too much that you are in charge and you can pause and you can let go of the memory and come back to your breath come back to your body and that is a choice too and a very valid and legitimate one and a version of taking care of yourself and showing yourself compassion so you can stay here or scale back or consider this next piece of how you are connected to other human beings who also hurt others Remembering that you are not the only person on this planet who has felt guilt, self-hatred, remorse, who has felt undeserving of forgiveness, who has not known how to self-forgive. That we do hurt people that we love and that we can be both imperfect and still lovable and worthy at the same time. And see if you can use this connection to other human beings to honor different sides of the reality that you're contending with right now. That you're imperfect and that on some level your actions also understandable and make sense given the causes, the influences that were present. Not as an excuse, but as an act of compassion. Or maybe you want to hold the reality that you messed up, you made a mistake, you violated your values, and you're going to work on it. And seeing if you can translate into some kind of statement multiple sides of this reality. So this could look like, I wish I had the courage to do something different and I know I didn't have the skills I needed. Or I'm deeply sorry I hurt this person and I'm going to try my best to not do this in the future again. Or other people regret decisions too. And that doesn't mean I can't change my decision-making process going forward. And maybe you're at a place where you're confused by your actions. You don't quite understand them. 
Maybe you're feeling too angry or too self-hating to see any kernel or part of your actions as understandable. And be with that. That's okay too. And if that's where you're at, maybe your statement that acknowledges multiple sides of your current reality is something like, I really hurt someone and feel awful. And I hope to be able to forgive myself eventually. Or I hope to be able to want to forgive myself eventually. And again, you can stay with this or consider this next question, which is given the multiple realities that exist, what commitment can you make both to yourself and someone else that would help you repair, reconcile in some way? Is it learning something new? Is it deconditioning a habit that has been instilled in you? Is there something you can take away from this situation that you can apply in a future situation? And can you turn that into a committed statement? Like, I will... How would you answer that statement? I will... And maybe you don't have an answer in this moment and that is something you continue to explore. And over time, getting as specific and concrete with that commitment as possible. So I invite you to close by taking a few more deep breaths If you haven't been using a a mudra at this point, you could also take one now. Palms gently facing up or the karuna mudra of compassion. Or even placing a hand on your heart or a part of your body that feels particularly in need of tenderness. Maybe there's a lot of tightness. There's some stuckness. Sometimes the chest and throat are places of tension when we're feeling regret and shame. And so gently placing a hand there. And when you're ready, you can gently open eyes or look up. And I want to thank you for engaging in this practice today and being a part of this conversation with me. And I do hope that this information is helpful that this practice is helpful and i so look forward to having you join me again soon thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well if you enjoy this podcast please subscribe share it with others or leave us a review if you'd like to reach out or connect more please follow me on instagram i hope you'll join us next time